You're listening to Climate Rising, an official podcast of Harvard Business School's Business and Environment Initiative. Before we get into today's episode, let me tell you about a new HBS online course called Business and Climate Change that we've just launched. In this five-week asynchronous online course, you'll learn the tools and tactics companies around the world are using to become more resilient to droughts, floods, wildfires, and storms, and how they're engaging in mitigation to reduce their emissions. This course enables you to leverage those insights to inform your own organization's strategy. Learn more and apply at the HBS online website or at hbs.me slash business and climate change. Now, on to Climate Rising. This is Climate Rising, a podcast from Harvard Business School, and I'm your host, Mike Toffel, a professor here at HBS. Today, I'm excited to share with you a special episode from a new one-week program we just ran for our MBA students here at HBS called Accelerating Climate Solutions. The session I'm sharing today is an interview conducted by my colleague, Eleanor Lawrence, with two food and ag experts, Alex Bondar, a partner at the venture capital firm, Acre Venture Partners, which invests in sustainable food and agriculture, and Rebecca Moses, Vice President of Impact Strategy at Ironox, an ag tech company that uses AI and plant science to create resilient food systems. They'll discuss several interesting opportunities to address the challenges climate change poses for our food systems. The session has been edited for length and clarity. Here's a special episode of Climate Rising featuring Eleanor Lorenz, Alex Bondar, and Rebecca Moses. Welcome to our fourth and final day of Accelerating Climate Solutions. Let's jump right into food and ag. Food production, 26% of emissions. And there's some real challenges. We have both population growth and we want the world to get richer. And as living standards rise, people tend to consume more meat. And so we have very deep structural challenges that actually push emissions up in this category, not down. And it's not really that clear where the solutions are gonna be coming from. There's definitely been activity in important areas, production efficiency, changes to diets, carbon sequestration, reducing food waste. But the alternative foods and low greenhouse gas emission proteins have been by far the largest area of investment to date. I thought it would be worth diving into the data that shows where those emissions come from in that 26%. Land use is a quarter, crop production 27%, livestock 31 and supply chain. But what's interesting is so much of it is for livestock. And this is why there's been so much interest in alternative protein. Because when you add up across these categories, things that are happening for livestock versus crops and food that go directly to humans, it's half of emissions. We have a very deep-seated assumption, I think, in the climate tech U.S. space, which is that to build a business, you have to assume consumer behavior will not change. And frankly, like every business plan I'm looking at right now, I'm going to bring that perspective to it. 10 or 20 years from now, are we going to be on more of a wartime footing? Will there be small but growing and meaningful segments of the population that are actually willing to change their behavior? I don't know. On that note, I want to turn it over to our two fabulous guests. I would love it if the two of you would introduce yourselves. Tell us about the organizations you've been a part of. Rebecca has had two big stops recently. Alex is in finance. Tell us about yourselves, your organizations. Alex, you want to start us off? Sure. Sounds good. Thank you for having me today. My name is Alex Bondar. I'm a partner at Acre Venture Partners. My background is I started in pure finance. So over time, made my way to venture in food. 
you know, I started in consumer-led companies with branding and trying to sell products. And for me, I think this transition to something more in the climate impact side has been really exciting, but also I think it's been much more impactful. I joined Acre in 2016 when we were starting the fund. The reason for the fund at the time was really investing in the future of food. That was something that was really novel. We wanted to do it around better outcomes for human and environmental health. And so a lot of the topics you're discussing today around how do we preserve this planet and also how do we provide better nutritious food for everyone. For us, that really means investing across the whole food value chain. You know, we invest in food tech, we invest in ag tech. We're also all the way down to the consumer. If you look a lot at our sub-verticals, things like food waste being more efficient are really part of that solution as well. We typically see through Series B investor, so early stage venture. We have investments in many of the areas. For us, predominantly U.S. focused, but also do a lot of work globally because we do think the food system is a global one. For instance, I spend a lot of time in Latin America looking at investments. I started doing a lot of work there in 2018. And a lot of the comments I was receiving on the alt protein space were almost curious. Why would you ever do something like this? By now, if you go down and talk to a lot of investors, a lot of operators, they're also very focused on sustainability. It's incredible how quickly the space has changed just in the last four to five years. Thanks, Alex. Rebecca, take it away. Yeah, thank you. My name is Rebecca Moses. I have a different track than Alex. I came out of food and agriculture and uh, specifically research and ecosystem services. I did for many years work around basically food, bugs, birds, and farmers looking at how do we share space? How do we share land between food production, the things that people need, but then the other things that people need, things like pollination, soil stabilization, all the the wonderful things that we get from nature for free that we don't necessarily attribute an economic value to. I've worked in kind of agricultural sustainability through graduate school, after graduate school for many years, like I said, largely in a research capacity. But there was a point where I kind of started looking around literally the acreage that we were conducting research on and thinking to myself, even if we convince everybody to do what we're doing, and that's it's a pretty sustainable set of practices that we're doing across rangeland and across actual crop production and acreage, it still doesn't solve problems. And there's two big problems that I was thinking about, three actually. One was climate change, one was biodiversity collapse, which is probably more threatening than climate change, although they are certainly linked. And then just water, water scarcity, water use. Um, I'm currently in California. We have a lot of water right now. That's not usually the case. So figuring out how to manage our surpluses. The thing that struck me was that private sector was probably going to be really important. There's no real way to scale these solutions without private sector, without things like impact investment. And so I had read, uh, this was early days, read about this interesting idea from a guy named Pat Brown. And he was founding this company called Impossible Foods. They'd actually been in R&D mode for about four years before I joined, but I came in right before we went to market. And I led their impact strategy team, which kind of focused on everything from operational sustainability to uh, how do we think about R&D roadmap? How do we think about product? And a lot, a lot, a lot around consumer activation. There's some interesting conversation happening around what consumers do or don't do, how they behave. We also did work uh, with U1 Climate Change Group. And there's a lot of interesting politicization of meat consumption, just anecdotally, 
we were doing a panel at one of the subsidiary body meetings in Bonn, Germany. I was asked formally within that panel, which was on the climate impact of, of agricultural systems to not talk about cattle because there had been a letter from certain countries suggesting that that would be inappropriate to do. So that was um, certainly some diplomatic tightrope walking on that particular panel. So there's lots of challenges in this. I would love to talk more about, about meat consumption. We will. The other issue that's that's really interesting to me is climate change adaptation. And that was what brought me to Ironox. We had been focusing on figuring out how you can expand the range of what is grown indoors by getting your unit economics in much better shape and getting out of just tomatoes, lettuce, and leafy greens to get more crops that can be grown in advanced controlled environmental agriculture systems using AI, machine learning, and robotics, uh, as well as genomics we were branching into. Predictive breeding, there's a huge array of things that we need to work on, technologies that we need to advance, changes that we need to deploy within our food system to counter big, wicked problems. Thank you both. What are your thoughts on these ups and downs we've had? I mean, Rebecca, you're coming right from Impossible. A few years ago, you were there for the, the rocket ship that went up. Alex, you're investing in it. What's your take on the space right now? There's a couple of things I wanted to comment on. It's a really good thing to think about consumer behavior. My question is, how would you test this? There's two things I want to push back on, actually. Ground beef is not healthy. Ground beef is is quite unhealthy in, in a lot of ways. Saturated fat, cholesterol, when you season it, you do end up taking in quite a lot of salt. Impossible burger is healthier than meat from a cow. Um, quantitatively, it is less fat, about the same amount of sodium. I don't even work for them anymore, but but I'll, I'll represent on this. But consumers don't always behave rationally when it comes to their health. And so I think that you can have a pretty successful business model, even if you're selling something that's not necessarily healthy. And we, I think we have quite a lot of good examples of that. But the, the point around consumers not wanting to change behavior is a very good one and I think really valid. There is precedent for it. There are things like uh, smoking and littering and picking up after your dog. I mean, from the 1970s on, we've seen sea changes in this, but it came after concerted, publicly funded efforts to change people's minds on things, things from the Ad Council, for example. We haven't ever seen that, perhaps because of the political climate. Agriculture is the only bipartisan committee in Congress. Um, we haven't seen that for things like dietary change in the same way. And I don't know that we ever are going to see it. And so these kind of alternative proteins are really important. You said that, and this is correct, you know, in terms of direct emissions, uh, food and agriculture constitutes about 26% of the total share. If you look at total land use, you can bump that figure up to close to 50% of total climate impact comes from how we eat and that comes from livestock. Extensive grazing lands take up huge amounts of the earth, and we have really limited carbon storage available to us in vegetation as a result of that. So we've kind of replaced natural landscapes with uh, burping cows. Actually, the enteric methane is a, is a burping issue that seaweed can only do a little bit to mitigate across the life cycle because most cattle are pastured, regardless of whether they're dairy or beef. There's one other really good point, and that's unit economics uh, and cellular agriculture. Big distinction between plant-based meat and cellular agriculture. Plant-based being you know, plant materials squished together, oils, um, proteins, uh, binding proteins, that kind of thing. It's relatively low tech once you get the, the formulation and the recipe right. Um, cellular ag is very, very different, wildly energy intensive until it seems like we have an energy system converging on free energy and unconstrained energy. That's something that would make me pretty skeptical of, of cellular agriculture. For us, 
there was a moment in time where as a food investor, we actually didn't have a play in all protein for a while because I think a lot of the issues you guys mentioned around, you know, we were not seeing some of these products as, as that healthy. We were seeing them as highly processed. And by the way, like very industrial, right? So if you think about soy protein, you think about pea protein. I mean, those are highly industrial supply chains. They don't really disrupt the way business is done today. So I think for us, you know, we're always searching for our alt protein play. Uh, I mean, if you look at our portfolio, that ended up being a company called Meaty with an I. They're using mycelium as a way to grow an alternative to protein that also has very similar texture to things like chicken and beef. That experience of eating it, you know, reminds you of what you would see in like a typical meat product. And at the same time, you know, if we look at the nutritional panel, it's, you know, has really high fiber, great protein content, a lot of the things that we look for in a healthy product and has fewer ingredients. For us, that was a really key element. I think if you look at a lot of consumer surveys, you know, they all point to the texture, taste, as well as health as the key attributes that consumers are looking for, much more so than sustainability. You know, I think if you interview anyone, they'll say, yeah, I don't want to kill the planet. But when they go to the grocery store or, you know, to food service, they'll typically put their dollars towards things that, you know, are healthier, are better tasting. But by the way, like, I don't think there's anything particularly unique here. You know, there have been multiple waves of coffee that people talk about. You know, we started with Folgers and then we went to Starbucks. And now a lot of people think Starbucks is too low market and they want to drink Blue Bottle and they want to drink some of these more fancy, you know, third wave coffees. To me, this is the same thing. You know, we started with, you know, let's say Beyond and Impossible and maybe Media is like the second or third wave. And then there's going to be another wave, which is cultivated meat that we get to at some point in time. The thing is, like, it's a very urgent problem. And from a financial investment, it's also one where we would like to get our returns within the scope of our fund. And so things like cultivated meat maybe don't make sense in that, that universe, you know, in terms of how quickly they'll be able to commercialize. But that doesn't mean that 10, 15, 20 years from now, we won't have some other products that will also address a lot of these issues. So for me, I think it's one of those things where I don't think there's a silver bullet. We're constantly evolving. And by the way, like, I don't want the you know, perfect to be the enemy of good. So for us, I think we're always looking at solutions that contribute to reducing a lot of these impacts. But at the same time, you know, as a fund, we're looking at for financial returns within a reasonable scope of time. Alex, I'd love to pick up on that for a second. A lot of climate tech is very asset intensive and has a long development cycle. And you referenced a few times in your comment the economics of your fund. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether venture returns that we've seen in the past in other industries are going to be a realistic expectation in the climate tech space. I mean, that's a great question. There's a reason why, you know, we're doing this. You know, I've been at it for seven years. Um, you know, we're, we just raised our third fund investing in this space. But I do think it's really important to differentiate between the types of investments you're making. And so, like I'm extremely bullish on greenhouses, for instance, in the United States. That's been a you know a huge uh, growth driver for the ag industry, irrespective of sustainability, just from a financial standpoint. But I think if you're an investor in in that space and you're just building purely greenhouses, I don't think that's a venture bet, for instance. But you know, we as a fund, for instance, are investing in a layer of technology to keep these greenhouses more efficient, to be able to save on a lot of this land use that we talk about. 
to me, it's almost finding the right parts of the value chain, the right um, attributes that do look more like traditional venture. Um, you know, biotech, I think, has been a really interesting play within food as we think about things like seed genetics that use fewer resources. You know, maybe there could be, you know, other genetic uses within even, you know, animal agriculture. Cultivated meat is a, is a biotech kind of play. But I think it's really important to differentiate, I think, between like steel in the ground versus uh, something that maybe is a bit more scalable, a bit more uh, capital efficient. Rebecca, staying a little bit on this financial theme for a moment, you mentioned in your opening comment a bit about impact investing. Tell us a little bit about how you feel about impact investing, its place in the food and ag space, the pros and cons and challenges. Impact investing to me is both something that is very important to continue to do and to refine it to get better at it. Well, at the same time, I I am quite skeptical of kind of the outcomes associated with it. This is a fairly sophisticated system that's been around for a little while, and we're asking it to do something that it was not purpose-built to do. Um, We are asking the generation of capital, the generation of wealth to align, if not perfectly, then, you know, pretty well with environmental or social good creation. This is not what capital was built for. Um, If anything, you know, the, the creation of wealth is agnostic at best to environmental and social good creation, extractive at worst. You know, I think yeah, this is a business school, right? We're all capitalists here, but these are real limitations that we face um, trying to kind of turn a boat that wasn't built to turn in a particular direction. So if we if we keep on asking, well, why is that a problem? Why is that a problem? I think the thing that we get down to at the very bottom of that list is, again, like, look, this just isn't what money was coded for. And as a result, you know, this is a massive limitation that I think we're going to face across every space when we address an urgent, you know, really existential crisis uh, that's bearing down on us that we've suddenly decided to kind of take seriously, at least in most parts of the world. And so I, I am I am very skeptical of the limitations there. The There's more tactical reasons for it as well. I'd like to see, and present company excluded, because I think Acre is one of the funds and firms that's doing this very, very well. I'd like to see more broadly across the impact investing space, certainly at a VC level, a little bit more focus on what kind of the criteria are to achieve environmental outcomes as a result of those investments. And that would have to be something, unfortunately, that's a little bit pre-competitive that goes beyond just a single fund because this is a whole pie of little slices of solutions. And I'm going to give an example of that. Um, and just because we're talking about alt protein, this is a, a good one to pick on. The rate of revenue growth and sales has been exponential from this space there has been absolutely no downturn in the amount of meat consumed across the world, across the United States, across production of cattle. Why do we think that is? What are the criteria that need to be met to actually achieve the environmental outcomes that we say we can achieve by substituting much, much lower footprint environmentally plant-based foods and take that market share from livestock products that are much, much higher environmental impact? What's happening? Why is there a disconnect? what people are used to is really important. Food is culture. So if your culture is is kind of shifting in a plant-based direction, it makes everything a lot easier in terms of adoption. But I'm thinking way upstream. What has to happen for environmental savings to occur? We need fewer cattle, right? In theory, we need less production. How can a plant-based meat product or a plant-based meat manufacturer create those conditions? What makes money for a rancher? It's not ground beef. You know, ground beef might be like 5% of the revenue associated with a cow. And a lot of it's coming out of the dairy herd. So you need whole cuts. 
you need to look at a USDA price spread and go, here's what's making money in this in this sector. And then you need to create alternative products that address that. And we haven't done it yet. And so Alex made the point, you know, we might see multiple generations of these kind of alternative proteins. And for that reason, I think additional impact investment money is really important in this space. But we haven't satisfied those conditions. And I don't know that we have enough actors within impact investing who are ecologists. I don't know that we have enough people kind of going, here's the conditions that we need to meet to take revenue and align it perfectly to environmental outcomes, or at least a little bit. And that's not just limited to alternative protein. I think that's a number of different fields. You need a lot of things to happen. And you also need supportive policy mechanisms, which is a whole other problem. But that's that's a big concern that I have with impact investing is we're not sophisticated enough. Uh, again, present company excluded. I think that's that's an exception. And I'll say one more thing on this, which is later stage past VC growth investing. It's hard to find growth stage capital for food and ag. And when you get later stage kind of institutional, a lot of ESG funds are just investing in tech broadly, not necessarily investing in transformative solutions. So if you have ESG funds bundled with uh, Meta, Google, kind of the big, you know, FANG group, I'm not sure that's impact, certainly not environmental. Uh, yeah, some skepticism on my end. Let's open it up to questions. Drawing the parallel to oil and gas, can we just use price mechanism to change consumer behavior, like through carbon tax on the food based on carbon intensity and over long longer time through capital discipline, like people invest less in the like cattle industry so that we drive up the price and and people would just think it's too expensive to eat a lot of meat. It's hard to put an additional price burden on a, on a critical good. And I think protein is something people need. It's not easy to shift diets, right? So historically, politically, it's been a, a nuclear football, the idea of regulating any industry beyond oil and gas in that way. What if we were to think about it from the inverse? What if we were to incentivize farmers and ranchers or land stewards, generational knowledge? Um, what if we were to incentivize them to do other types of production, carbon farming, ecosystem service payments? There is some precedent for that in Farm Bill. What if there are alternative livelihoods? I, I'm not saying that we should shift all of farming or all of ranching into this, but what if we had ways to incentivize some of the landscape level conservation that we want to see without necessarily a kind of a punitive approach that might be a little utopian. But I do I do hesitate to think about taxing meat. I tend to agree with that. If you look at some of the bets that we made recently, I think they've been around this idea of conservation, but then how do you commoditize conservation around I think carbon is one, but then there's other, I think, credits that can come to market. And so over time I think some of these really rich ecosystems that are being used for maybe suboptimal production of things like cattle, you could harness that that value. So in terms of water credits, carbon credits, biodiversity credits, I think all of these like natural assets, that's a new class, I think, of investment that's really been evolving in the last couple of years. And so that's something we're hoping to see as well in terms of making better optimization decisions around what is truly valuable to our society, the planet, all those things, but putting some type of value on them. Carbon farming, I think, is an interesting concept as well that you know we're we're investing behind. I don't know if you guys have experience in fish farming, but I've heard a lot of classmates kind of talk about you know how it's, it solves the overfishing problem, but it, you know it also has like pretty significant environmental impacts. I was wondering if you could talk about kind of the future of that alternative to just wild caught uh, fish, um, and if it's actually viable. I mean, we've been looking at aquaculture as an investment 
theme since day one. To be honest with you, we haven't seen as much innovation in that space. Just to be optimistic about a lot of things is that the quality of entrepreneurs they're seeing and the number of interesting investments that we're seeing in the space has increased exponentially over the last uh, you know five, six years. In many ways, like I think the solutions are getting better. The talent is getting better. Aquaculture, I think, is one where we're still not maybe seeing as much potential as in other parts of the food industry. And so I'd love to see more entrepreneurs pursue that. At the same time, I think it's it, there are some unique challenges given how consolidated that space is. I mean, there's like basically a few companies that control most of the farming. And there is a baby a branding issue too, right? Because to your point, I think the consumer is probably pretty confused these days about, oh, is wild better maybe because it is more, you know, sustainable in other ways? Like, what should I do? The whole issue with oceans, I think, is a major, major problem that a lot of us are not even considering as part of these solutions. So to me, I think that's maybe the, the next stage that needs to happen is how do we protect the oceans? I think this this particular issue where you do see from a, like a socioeconomic perspective, wild caught you know, fisheries culture is really, really important to certain regions. And I would almost think about fish farming or crustacean farming, just blue food in general, in the same way that I think about indoor farming, which is it's not necessarily always environmentally better, but oftentimes there's a socioeconomic component to it. Um, for certain regions that can be very critical, or at least promising in terms of economic development. Um, and I think we're seeing a lot of that expansion happen in, di again, different types of fish farming, but particularly crustacean farming space. Environmentally, much of the concern associated with fish farming goes down to something called like a feed to food ratio. Uh, basically, how much energy or protein or calories uh, did you put into that fish in order to get a pound of fish meat out of it? And uh, so often the feed source is the thing that can determine whether or not this is kind of environmentally superior in terms of performance. And that's something that I know there is quite a bit of innovation going into that is like, how do we create a better feed source for these fish that breeds healthy fish that's not environmentally destructive or as environmentally destructive? And there's a, a pretty good paper out actually recently from Stanford that looks at blue foods and the various types of ways that diets can be assembled around these. Yeah, I had a, a thought on the idea of changing diets and if food is about culture and if it's generate if it would take a generation to change people's diets uh, i was thinking of something more tactical which is this uh, increasing transparency around carbon the carbon footprint of let's say a, a, on a menu you could have <clears throat> the same way you have calories today that would be an easy way to maybe give power in the hands of consumers and i'm thinking of this because in other industries like in the, in the ev space for instance in 2026 in europe there's something that's going to be called the battery passport. So when you'll be buying an electric vehicle, you'll be able to know the exact footprint of your battery and you'll be able to compare across OEMs and pick your EV. Do you think that's the direction of travel of the food industry and we're um, headed towards like more carbon transparency? I think we're, we are seeing that. I think the direction of travel is there. I don't know how saturated that market is going to be um, and how often we are going to see it. I don't know that McDonald's is going to opt into this. We do already have this in some places that are voluntarily disclosing and investing in carbon footprinting and, and LCAs in general are expensive, uh, but there are ways to scale them. I don't know if you've ever been to Just Salad. I know that they're um, on the East Coast. They're super committed to this. Um, places like Max Burger in Sweden, Northern Europe in general, they've been doing this for over 10 years. Panera even has like a cool foods menu. Uh, so we're seeing it start to mainstream a little bit. To what extent that's shifting consumer behavior at moment of purchase, I don't know. There are some studies that show kind of dynamic um, types of messaging will help people shift 
what they put on their plate. When I was at Impossible Foods, we did this with our packaging. Uh, you can look at the full LCA statistics on the side of an Impossible Burger or Impossible you know, Chicken Nugget package. I think we might've been the first to do that, but you can see water, carbon emissions, and land use um, comparison. Not everybody is gonna do this, but if you look at a carbon footprint, you can play with that a little bit. You can create a, a carbon neutral pound of beef. Now, if you were to, to make carbon neutral beef production the norm, you would devastate the planet. That's an extremely extensive system, but you can do it. You can do it on like a cow basis or a ranch basis. You know, does that make that an environmentally superior product? Definitely not, but it would look better in the moment compared to a plant-based product that wasn't carbon neutral. So I, I think there's some, some ways that that system can bite us a little bit, but it's better than not having it. Alex, I'm going to jump in with another question. I got us started focusing on all protein, and I want to make sure we leave space to hear about other parts of your portfolio and other spaces that you all are interested in so that we make sure we give the class a wide enough aperture of understanding of all the things you're looking at. Do you want to share a little bit about other things you've looked at, invested in, are excited about in the future? Sure. Yeah, happy to. I mean, I think for us, as I mentioned, you know, it is that whole food value chain. And so some of the things that we invest in maybe are less in the news and less exciting to people, but at the same time, maybe have even greater impact. And so I think starting from the farm, one of the things that has been challenging is that I think a lot of times farmers are forced to be the stewards of a lot of these solutions in ways where they're essentially asked to do this as like a charity work for the rest of us. Even though if you look at their margins and kind of where their profits are relative to everyone else, they're getting the least out of the system. So it's like, taking the, the, the most oppressed in this value chain and asking them to, you know, take one for the team. And so in many ways, I think it is about enabling farmers to also, you know, have a more profitable business where they can take on some of these alternative solutions or at least be willing to take those risks where in today's system, maybe they wouldn't be given the, you know, just the pure financial elements of it. And so even as you talk about things like, you know, nitrogen reduction, you know, we, we have investments in that where you have, you know, fertilizer reduction, better use of resources in general, shifting away from chemicals to biologicals within the ag system. So that way you have better soil health. We can reduce it down to carbon. I think that's just a simplistic way because it's easy and it's commodified. But soil health as, a, as an idea is, is much bigger than that. You know, our, our planet depends on a lot of that, not just for carbon storage. You know, as we look down the supply chain, you know, efficiencies come to mind. Uh, we have a company in Boston called Spoiler Alert, which is working with a lot of leading CPGs uh, to minimize their food waste. And so if we can divert food from landfills and actually put it on people's plates or do something with it that's more productive, you know, we feel like that has a huge impact because you're not forced to produce more food. You can just maybe save the 30, 40% of the food that we're wasting in today's supply chain. There's many ways to go about this. And I think a lot of this for me is, once again, no silver bullet. I think it's really about kind of a combination of things. You know, I'm very optimistic. I think relative to where this industry was even five, six years ago, I think impossible. I think Beyond have done an excellent job of educating the consumer about problems with beef, you know, 20 years ago, I'm not sure any of us would have said, you know, a cow is a problem for the environment. And I think we're kind of getting there on these other solutions as well. To me, you know, it's a pretty exciting place to be tackling things like, you know, these existential risks of climate change, tackling challenges we face with our health and nutrition. You know, as a VC, that's as big as they get.
I think we could squeeze in one or two more student questions. I'm curious about how you guys consider the ability to change consumers' behavior versus farmers' behavior, which one's maybe easier. And then as for enabling farmers to farm more regeneratively, regeneratively or have fewer carbon emissions, um, what are the best mechanisms to do that? And who are the right stakeholders to be working with and convincing farmers to change? At least from my perspective, I think farmer might be a little bit easier just because it is a business decision. It's an ROI decision. I think fundamentally farmers are very rational in terms of you know, the types of products they use and what they do. And so if you can show the ROI, if you can show the economic impact, that tends to work really well. Whereas on the consumer side, a lot of times it is a more kind of branding, emotional decision. There's a cultural element. There's all these things that maybe are less easy to quantitatively control. To be honest with you, I do think maybe this is also financially, you probably get more impact from the farming side because if you do change the way the farming system works, that impact flows down quite impressively through that supply chain and can also be very global because most farming globally is done in a very similar manner, especially for some of these like, you know, large crops. And so I tend to gravitate towards the B2B world a little bit within our investing. But, you know, I think that's that's maybe also a, a personal um, point of view. Ditto, Alex. And, and I think this is an area where policy um, is really important. If you look at it, farmers are, are squeezed horrifically in what we expect of them. And if you look at things like farm bill programs like WIP, EQIP, CSP conservation stewardship program, they're in acre-based incentives for farmers to adopt basically management practices and to help them pay for things that do create risk and create time and additional labor around their crops compared to a baseline. And so I think we recently saw an expansion of those things, but continued uh, they're oversubscribed is, is pretty helpful for this. I could keep going, but we're out of time. I wanted to say a huge thank you to our two guests. There's certainly been moments of pessimism, but Rebecca, I was really struck by the comments you made about thinking about behaviors that we once took for granted, whether it was smoking or littering or whatever it was, and choosing to feel optimism that we can have change. And Alex, I think you reflected it as well in some of the areas in your fund that you've been investing in. So um, a big thank you to our guests. This was a special episode of Climate Rising, featuring a conversation on food and agriculture with Eleanor Lawrence, Alex Bondar, and Rebecca Moses from the HBS Accelerating Climate Solutions Program. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, share with your friends, and don't forget to rate and review. For show notes, head over to climaterising.org or click on the link in the podcast information. You've been listening to Climate Rising. I'm your host, Mike Toffel. Kate Zarenner is our producer, and Craig McDonald is our audio engineer. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Climate Rising. See you then.